The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church Pulpit Series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Good to see you here on a frosty, cold winter's morning. It's going to warm up to 22, so it's going to be a great day. Sun's out. Stick around. Have coffee out there. It's going to be a fabulous morning tea. Well, I have mixed feelings about my message this morning. On the one hand, I'm kind of a little bit excited. But on the other hand, I'm a little bit nervous. And if you've been journeying with us and re- you've been doing the pre-reading, you'll understand why. Um, again, if you're visiting with us, we're partway through a series called Unbroken, uh, based on the movie of the same name. Uh, again, the movie was about this guy uh, who ends up in a Japanese prison of war camp and just endures incredible hardship uh, and suffering uh, and comes out uh, at the other end, a broken man, and, and eventually ends up finding Jesus and how it transforms his life. And uh, just a powerful story. But we're looking at this whole theme of the, in the book of Peter and this idea that Christians, we're, we're living in a hostile world. We're living in a world that's alienated from God and a culture that is, is going in a completely different direction. And, and Peter's engaging with that question of how do we as Christians live in that context, live in that culture? And uh, we've been looking through uh, different passages and we're up to chapter 2, uh, verses 11, all the way to 3, um, verse 7. And so we've been sending out those emails to encourage people to read in advance and come prepared because they're big slabs that we're working through. And it's hard to read through all those uh, verses in church on a Sunday morning. And this passage that we come to today has been very topical this week in the media. Um, there was an article released, a very long article written by a lady called Julia Baird from the ABC um, about domestic violence. Uh, and I read that article and so many things about it troubled me. Uh, it was a very confronting article. It was called, um, Wives Submit to Your Husbands, How um, domestic Vi- uh, Wives Are to- Told to Endure Domestic Violence in the Name of God. Um, and it was a long, long investigative piece of years of research and and it was just really really troubling one of the things that really confronted me was this statistic it said 22 percent a study done in queensland found that 22 percent of offenders of domestic violence and abuse go to church regularly 22 percent 22 percent that's a fifth that's ridiculous it ought not to be. Uh, and, and then there was a, a quote by a theologian who was writing uh, on domestic violence and also had done research. And he said this, evangelical men, we're a part of that stream, evangelical men who sporadically attend church, listen to this, are more likely than men of any other religious group, any other religious group, and more likely than secular men to assault their wives. Wow, that, that really troubled me. Because see, one of the things that this article brought out is that 1 Peter chapter 2, this section we're looking at, is one of the passages that churches and Christians have used to justify domestic violence. So that's why you can see I'm a bit nervous this morning. And so the danger 
Two dangers, actually, that we, 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 we need to be aware of and avoid as we come to passages like this. On the one hand, is to dismiss them as being irrelevant, outdated, you know, really uh, archaic, masochistic, and just write them off and go, you know what, let's just tear that bit out of our Bibles because it's not relevant and it should never be preached or taught at all in churches. One, one Bible um, commentator said this, Karen Jobes, she writes a commentary, and she said that how ironic that the words that first century slaves and wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. It's ironic. Perhaps we've missed something in understanding what the original writers and the original hearers, how they would have understood and read these texts. The second danger is, is equally uh, a threat. And, and that is what this article reflected, where these passages are applied incorrectly. They're applied one-to-one. -one. Uh, they say, well, the Bible says this, and clearly that means that I should just go and beat up my wife. Just an incorrect, wrong understanding and a wrong application of these texts, whether it's because of wrong teaching or just not understanding how to read your Bible well and or selectively reading your Bible and only grabbing the bits that serve your own selfish and evil aims. And you know, in this article, one of the quotes that came out was this one. Abusive men commonly refer to passages such as 1 Peter that tell women to submit to husbands in a very particular way as they follow instructions to slaves to submit to even harsh masters. And so the argument goes, well, look, Peter says that slaves should just put up with a beating from their masters because that's what Jesus would want. And, and because the, the passage about husbands and wives immediately follows that, then wives should do the same. It's just crazy. And so I, I want to come to this passage with great humility this morning. And I want to say things that you might find personally offensive. And I hope they're not. And I hope you kind of see that what the Bible is saying here is so opposed to any sense of being a justification for domestic violence. And I want to say in the most categorical and clear way I can that at PCC, we will never, ever condone violence against women. And violence against children, actually violence in general. We just would not do that. And you'll see that as we read through this passage, neither does the Bible. Okay, having said that, let's look at what Peter is saying here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and following. And I want to just start off in this first section where Peter kind of summarizes and sets the theme and re recaptures the things that he's already been saying. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Dear friends, I urge you, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. 
just a few uh, introductory comments. Uh, we'll, we'll see as we continue reading Peter, and we'll probably already notice that Peter writes in these panels of thought. He, he has a teaching section, and then he has an application section. He, he teaches, and then he tells them how to live that out, and we've encountered that idea already. And so this, I urge you, clearly suggests and indicates what that he, that he wants to now tell them about the practical applications. He's, he's talking about their behavior and their moral conduct. That's what we're going to find. And then he says, as foreigners and exiles, these, this idea that we've already seen uh, several times, Peter has brought out, that Christians, we're, we're misfits in this world. We're, we're meant to be countercultural. We're meant to be we're strangers and aliens and pilgrims here. This is not our home. And so our behavior ought to be governed by our heavenly behavior or our home behavior rather than determined by the cultural practices of the world we live in. Because we're foreigners, we're exiles, we don't belong here. And he says, because of that, we are to abstain from sinful desires. In the previous section, he says that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We're meant to be holy and devoted to God. We're God's special people. We're living stones. And so we ought not to be characterized by the behavior that once characterized our life. We should, we should abstain from those things because they're no longer part of our DNA. They're no longer part of our culture of heaven kingdom culture abstain from those desires they're warring against your soul and then he goes on to talk about this other theme that we keep coming up with live such good lives among the pagans interesting peter is saying here is that christian moral behavior for these guys compared to pagan standards in other words compared to the standards of the culture that they lived in ought to be superior so He's saying that if the world around you values certain things and believes in certain things and expects their citizens who are not even Christians to live a certain way, then we ought to at least be living by those standards, if not excelling those standards. He says, live, live such good lives among the pagans. If the pagans judged you by the standards of their moral behavior, you should pass. You should pass. Now let me flip that around to domestic violence. If our culture says that that is a crime, then it has no place in the church at all. Because our culture would condemn us. And Peter would even in this verse not allow that at all. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. See, Dash mentioned last week several accusations because Christians would use language like love feasts which pagans understood as being an orgy even though christians were talking about what we just did communion they talked about loving their brothers and sisters now a pagan mind would go that's incest that's a bit creepy there were all kinds of accusations out of ignorance and out of a lack of understanding of words that were used in christian theology and christian church practice and so there were all these accusations from the culture against the church but one of the most significant ones was the accusation of treason treason because christians followed another king and not the emperor and the fear in pagan society at the time was that christians would destabilize their country uh, their society destabilize their culture because they talked about the fact that they're free now that christians had been set free had been liberated and so they were concerned that that liberation would cause them to disrespect any authority to buck against any institution to bring chaos into their society and so Peter says, they will accuse you of doing wrong, but you should not give them a valid reason 
to cast accusations against the church. And he says that the solution is that they might see your good deeds. He's talking about observable behavior, not I know in my heart that I'm doing the right thing. No, Peter goes, that's not enough. People in your culture need to see your good deeds. Why? Because then they will glorify God. And again, look at what he says on the day he visits us. It might mean that in this time frame, as long as you live, they might never acknowledge the goodness of your good deeds. Because sometimes we know Christians, we, we talk about, you know, we should live good lives so that people will recognize our Christian worth and value and dignity. But Peter says that might never happen until Jesus comes back again. But in that day, they will give glory to God. In that day, they will recognize your faithfulness to follow Christ, even if in this life they never do. So how does Peter tell them to live? How does Peter now go on to instruct them in practical living into that kind of cultural milieu, in the cultural mindset of that day, into their world that they were living in? What does he say? Verse 13, the first thing he says to them is submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves. Now let me ask you a question. Who is that instruction given to at this point? It's given to everyone, men and women why is it that men always latch onto that and say that it's something that women are to do to them submit yourselves for the lord's sake look at what he says to every human authority and that word the niv has actually added that in to kind of set the context in the greek it actually is to every human creature Every human creature that has been delegated a certain authority, for sure, that's the the context that Peter is speaking into. But the word he uses there is to say, we ought to submit ourselves to each other in the roles that God has assigned for us to serve in. Submit. Let's talk about this word. Because in in our culture, that's a dirty word. Right? That's probably a dirtier word than sex. And they start with the same letter. Submission. Submission. Let me just allay your fears. This word is the same word that's used to describe Jesus. How he conducted himself. How he acted. That ought to give us a clue that in our modern Western context, we've misunderstood this word. This word carries the idea of being yielded, of giving way to someone else. It's what you do at every give way sign that you come to. You do that every day when you drive you yield i think in melbourne it's actually called a yield sign i don't know if they or in america it's called a yield it's the give way sign that's submission it could have been submit it's gracious and notice what peter says here submit yourselves submission is not something that can be demanded of you It's not something that somebody else can impose on you. It's not something that somebody else can tell you to do. Peter says, submit yourselves. It is an internal act that you alone can do. Submit yourselves. Peter is writing into a very particular context. He's writing to a context of an emperor, of uh, a, a political system that is a certain way. He's not writing to a democratic society. He's writing to a society and a context that has slaves and masters, not in our equal employment opportunity world. He's writing to a context where men and women were living in a patriarchal society. 
And he's telling these Christians how to live in the, in the sense of institutions that were opposed to God. We've got to keep that in mind. One, one Bible comment, Karen Job's actually a woman. She says this. She said, in all of our discussion about submission, one of the things we miss about this passage is that Peter is writing to slaves and women at all. We miss that. But in their culture, that would have been huge. Because in equivalent pagan moral codes, like this is a part of it's called a household code. And the Greeks had one, the Romans had one, Jews had one. In none of them are women and slaves ever addressed. Why? Because they weren't considered worth addressing. But the Christian mindset, Peter's mindset, he addresses them individually as the powerless ones in their society. What is Peter saying? He said, even though your culture regards you as powerless, I am addressing you as an independent, free, moral agent who makes choices. The rest of your society does not treat you like that, but the gospel treats you like that. Submission. He was writing into a particular historical context. And submission never means putting up with anything, being treated like a doormat, having to deal with, with abuse that violates God's instructions. That is never intended in the word submission. Submit. Submit yourselves. I'm going to skip the next bit for the Lord's sake and come back to it. But he says to every human creature, to every human authority. And then Peter goes on to talk about the institutions that particularly governed their lives, which was the emperor, the empire, the Roman empire. That had a major, major influence. And so Peter begins there and he says, whether it is the emperor as the supreme authority, but again, it's a measured supreme authority. It's not total supreme authority. And so they would have found that one of the hardest things to do theologically, to submit to the emperor. Why? Because he claimed to be divine. And as a Christian, theologically, we were supposed to only worship and submit to Jesus. And so the whole practice of offering incense to the emperor was particularly a challenge for Christians, to worship the emperor. And yet, Peter says, submit for the Lord's sake, whether to the emperor, and we'll talk about how he qualifies that as the supreme authority or to the governors. The governors were sent by the emperor to, to manage law and order in local communities. These guys would have been the hardest for them to submit to practically. Why? Because they, more than the emperor, really governed their day-to-day -day living. If you've come from a, you know, a non-Western context like I have, it's the equivalent of the village chief or the local magistrate. And often we knew all their sins. You knew how corrupt they were. You knew how the bribes that they'd taken. You knew all the dodgy stuff that they'd done. Right? Whereas the, the, the people in government, the president, they're kind of removed and distant. But the local guys, you knew those guys. And it was hardest to submit to them even for these guys because they knew about these they knew the corruption they knew the the bad and evil things that these guys were doing and yet peter says practically submit to them submit to them he says that the, the emperor has sent them to maintain law and order and again he says that part of god's plan and purpose that you might not agree and they might not do everything the way god wants them to but they're still somehow agents of god in romans 13 paul goes further and actually calls government officials servants of god ministers of god it is god's will 
for you to do good and silence the ignorant talk, verse 15. And then he talks to slaves and notice what he says. He says, don't just submit, again, submit yourselves. So that phrase in verse 13 kind of governs all of the stuff that Peter goes on to say, but he'll keep coming back to remind them of that initial opening statement in verse 13. Now he says to slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And again, he qualifies it. He says, not only to those who are good, because that's the easy part. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Harsh. And he, he goes on to say, and submit even in the face of unjust suffering. When you get beaten for actually doing the right thing. And it's not just the obedient thing. It's not just the honorable thing. It's the Christ-like thing. He says, when you honor Jesus, when you're in that workplace and your master beats you because you're a Christian, because you're doing what Jesus wants you to do, endure it. And this is where he says something that many have struggled with. He says, that is commendable to God. It's not the beating that's commendable. It's not the suffering in itself that's commendable. What is commendable to Peter is that a Christian would say, I know if I was to commit myself to following Jesus in this situation, it will probably get me a beating. But I'm going to do it anyway because honoring Jesus is more important to me than not experiencing personal pain. That is what is commendable to God. That your commitment to Christ and to honoring Him takes you beyond your personal self-interest. So Peter says, submit, slaves. You are in this institution that is unfair and that's unjust and all of that. Yes, but that is the institution you're living. May not your Christianity ever destabilize that institution because now you're in rebellion and now you're, you're, you're defiant and aggressive. May that never be said of you. And then Peter has this whole section about Jesus and his example, and we'll come back to that. And then we come to chapter 3, where he's talking about wives. And he says again, wives in the same way, referring back to 2.13, submit to everyone. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. Again, not just the believing ones. In fact, Peter is writing in the context of institutions that were non-Christian. The emperor, the governors, they weren't Christians. The masters that he's writing about are not Christians. And the husbands that he's telling these wives to submit to are not Christians. Again, Peter does not allow in any shape or form a Christian husband to ever abuse his wife. Because he's not writing here to that. He's writing to a whole bunch of women that somehow had been converted without their husbands. And that's significant in their context because in the, in the pagan Roman, Greco-Roman world, a husband's religion was the whole family's religion. And so you can see why if a woman in that context was to convert and embrace a different religion, it could have been seen as being a way of defying your husband and bringing shame and dishonor. And quite possibly some of these men were experiencing ridicule and, and, and a loss of status in their community as their wives trotted off to church on a Sunday in front of everybody. Go, ah, oh, there goes your wife. She's going to church. Ha, ha, ha. And Peter is saying, don't, don't bring shame on your husband through your conversion. Don't, don't let your freedom in Christ ever bring dishonor to your husband. He's saying submit to them. And he's saying not only to the godly, not only to the kind, not only to the good ones, 
but submit to them through your behavior. And he's saying, don't nag them. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Because chances are these women had been inviting their husbands to church and trying to get them to come to church and telling them about Jesus. And Peter is saying, that's not helping. They may have even come to church and gone, what are these crazy people doing? He's saying, stop relying on your words. Let them see Jesus in you in how you behave at home, in how you respect them and how you honor them, not, not in being defiant and rebellious and disobedient, saying, I'm free, I can, Jesus has set me free, I don't need to listen to you, I'm my own woman, I can do whatever I want, I'm going to go to church whether you want me to go or not. What Peter doesn't do is tell them how to deal with this stuff. He just gives them the principles and says, now you and your husband, you talk about this and you work it out. How does this look like? So today, for instance, if one person in a household becomes a Christian, if you're a, you know, a woman gets saved and becomes a Christian and their husband is a Muslim or their husband is from another faith or just an atheist or something else and says, I forbid you to go to church. What does a wife do in that context? Well, Peter doesn't tell you other than saying, be respectful, honor your husband. He's not a believer. How can you, through your conduct, win him for Christ and maintain your commitment to Jesus at the same time talk it out what does that look like how does it work he doesn't give specifics submit to every creature and then husbands verse 13 sorry verse 7 chapter 3 husbands in the same way with the same attitude of grace and deference and yieldingness in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect husbands are not off the hook and that's why i don't understand how a husband can ever use one peter to justify domestic violence because he's not reading verse 7 of chapter 3 treat your wives as considerate as you live with them treat them with respect as the weaker partner now again, we read that in our context and go, whoa, 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 all the women get all worked up. The weaker partner, does it really say that? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Again, what does Peter mean by this? He means, think about it. Women are physically, generally weaker than men. Now, in, in our current context, it's getting really blurry, some of these gender lines, all right? I can decide, you know what, I want to be identified as a woman and I want to run in whatever event in the Olympics I want to run in as a woman. And people are kind of, especially women's movements, are rising up and saying, hang on, we just won this gender war for equality and now men get to do women's stuff again? Peter's just saying, look, women are physically weaker. And in his context, sociologically, uh, economically, in every way, weaker. Weaker. What Peter is saying is, Men, don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your physical strength. And he says, the word he uses, the husband's in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. It's actually a generic word for women. It means every woman in your household, including your daughters, including your female slaves. He's saying care for them as the weak and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, saying that you have power in your house. You're stronger physically. And when it says live with your wives, that word every commentator says has, hasn't just cohabiting it has a sexual connotation to it it's saying even in the bedroom don't abuse your power even though you have the right to 
That is not the Christian way. Don't use your strength. Don't use your power over your wife. Peter says that is not acceptable. Ever acceptable. In fact, he says, give your power. Lend your power to your wife so that there can be greater equality. Submit to every living creature. Go back, verse 13, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. This is the governing principle. This is the idea that kind of moves everything forward. And in fact, it's interesting that Peter puts this phrase before every human creature. And that's significant because Peter is not just saying to them, do the pagan thing, right? As a slave, you're expected to be submissive. As, as, a, pagan, uh, as a pagan wife, you're expected to be submissive. As a pagan citizen, you're expected to be submissive to your emperor. But Peter kind of subverts that and he goes, that's not enough for you to just be a good moral citizen or a good slave or a good moral wife. As a Christian, there has to be more. And so he puts this little phrase in front of the command to submit. And that is for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Now that phrase has two significant applications. One is that it kind of governs and motivates their submission. So throughout this section, Peter keeps talking about how things are commendable to God. In this thing about, uh, in the section about citizens, he says, verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence. This idea that really it's about honoring God and doing God's will. And then he talks about, and I love this, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, but love your fellow believer. As a Christian, you're supposed to conduct yourself with a higher moral code of love, not just respect. And then he kind of does this chiasm kind of structural thing he makes point a point b point b1 and then point a again and then he says love your fellow believers but then fear god the highest thing reverence god honor god and then show honor to the emperor he's saying your commitment to christ trumps everything else so if your emperor is asking you to bow down and worship him then you've got to say respectfully no i will not do that and this is one of the things that pagan citizens just did not get. Right, let me explain this. For pagans to be dodgy citizens was a commonplace thing. Right? To not pay taxes, to not keep the law, to kind of find shortcuts, to get around the legal system. That was commonplace. But what they all did was go to the temple and worship the emperor. In their mind, that was the easy part. But here were Christians saying no to the easy part and saying yes to the harder moral requirement it's the equivalent of in australia us refusing to salute the australian flag in our school assembly and yet paying our taxes keeping the speed limits and doing everything else the law requires us to do people would go you guys are nuts man that's the point because we serve a higher authority and that's why Peter uses that word to submit to every human creature because he wants them to know that there is a higher authority. These authorities are temporary. They're human, just like you are. Appointed by God, appointed by our civil processes, appointed by institutions, appointed by our culture into authority and to have a function. Yes, but they're human. The ultimate authority is Jesus. So your loyalty is always to Him first. As a slave, he says... It's commendable when you honor God because you're conscious of God. Verse 19, 
It's because of God. Verse 21, to this you were called. In every section, he wants them to realize that it is out of reverence for God. It is out of fear for God. In the section on wives, he does the same thing. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe, they may be won over with our words by your behavior. Verse 2, when they see the purity and reverence of your life. That's reverence for God. It's not, he's saying, you don't have to fear your husbands. You don't have to fear your master. You don't have to fear the emperor because there is one who you should fear even more. And that's Jesus Christ. So honor him. And so if your emperor, if your master, if your husband, if your wife is ever asking you to do something that violates the law of God and the will of God and being faithful to Jesus, then you have a problem. Then you have a problem. And so in the husband's, in the wife's section, he, he, he brings this out by saying, women, think about how you dress. Now again, we, lead, we read that in our modern context and go, how offensive. How dare Peter tell anybody what to wear? He's addressing an opportunity that those women had to get power back by using their bodies. By, using, by dressing sexually, by being um, sexualized in their, in their bodies. And go, these women can be tempted to go, you know what, I might not have power economically i might not have power socially but i have power sexually and i'm going to use my body and dress provocatively to even the playing field and and peter says no don't do that because god is more interested in your inner beauty that you clothe your inner person with gentleness and peace because you're doing that it's it's in god's sight and what a word for us for for today that women it's so tempting to get power and respect by using your body. And Peter is not saying, you know, you, know like you can't wear this and you can't wear that. He's saying there's a better way. If you're honoring Jesus, don't try to get power by the way your culture tries to get power. Resist that because God values your inner beauty. And when he comes to the men, he, he, he does the same thing. He says, if you're a Christian, then respect your wife because she's a co-heir with you. She shares something of the, the equal rights of being in the kingdom and God's grace. And he says, that's countercultural. Your culture will tell you that your, your wives are less status, less important, less equal than you. But if you're a believer, for the Lord's sake, treat your wife with respect and equality. And don't buy into your culture of oppression. And he says, act out of a commitment for your relationship with God first, knowing that if you don't do this in your home, then God will not answer your prayers. Honor, treat with respect. The second thing that that phrase for the Lord's sake does is model how they're to submit, model their behavior. And that whole gospel narrative brings three kind of correctives that Peter is alluding to. And this is kind of the practical application for us as we wrap this up and think about how we live this in our context. Right in the middle of all of this, Peter sticks this section about Jesus. He says, verse 21, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes from Isaiah, the the famous suffering servant passages. And then verse 25, he says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's, He's wanting them to anchor all of this stuff in the gospel to understand that the gospel and and jesus and and his example is our example to follow and that's why he can say for the lord's sake submit to every creature 
So how does the gospel correct this? The first thing it corrects is any sense of uh, revolution or, or resistance. Well, Christians aren't meant to take up arms in a political campaign. It's not how it's meant to be. Right? Yes, we live in a dem- democracy and we have opportunities to engage in the political process in different ways. But Peter's not writing a political manifesto here. So there is no place for, for Christians to rise up in revolution. Uh, in the Roman Empire, when, when Rome came in to sack Jerusalem, the church left. They, they didn't sign up to fight with the zealots and to fight against Roman conquerors. And that was the biggest misunderstanding that people had of Jesus because they thought he was here to lead a political re- rebellion and revolution. The gospel corrects that. And that's why Peter says, look at Jesus. When he was insulted and he was accused and he was suffering, it was unjust. He made no threats. He didn't retaliate. And that's why Peter can say, that's who you are. You are followers of Jesus. And remember, you're chosen. You're royal. You have an inheritance in heaven. So you don't need to fight to get power, to get equality here and now. Because God sees you as valued people. He has chosen you. He's elected you. He has made you his own. And you have a sure inheritance. And look at Jesus. He was the most powerful and the most secure. And so he didn't need to retaliate and fight. He surrendered and he submitted. So the gospel corrects any desire in our heart of getting even, of retaliating, of repaying evil with evil, of evening the score politically with violence. There's none of that. The gospel speaks to that. The second thing the gospel speaks to is the opposite extreme of apathy, of disengagement, of, you know, just waiting for Jesus to come back and rescue us from this terrible evil world and we do nothing. Well, Peter will not allow us to do that. Throughout, he says, God's calling on us is to do good. We've been called out of darkness to proclaim his good news. We've been rescued from sin so that we can live for righteousness. And again, he models Jesus. He says, Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He didn't stay removed and aloof and refusing to enter into suffering and pain. No, he came and he suffered for us. His stripes were for our healing. He engaged, he stepped in and he did something about our state. And as we look around, Peter would call us to rise up and say, we need to engage. We need to step in. We need to get involved. We need to use political process. We need to use the, the different dynamics of our marriages today to do it differently. We need workplace arrangements that, that are different today. We're not slaves. We can step into those processes rather than disengage and say, you know what? I'm just going to wait for Jesus to come back. The gospel corrects that. Karen Job says this. When, when read within its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation within the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. The Christian's willingness to suffer unjustly out of reverence for God in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus is a radical break with social expectations of that day, just as it is in our day. We were called to engage. And I missed Bonhoeffer's quote, and I want to show you that because it's such a profound quote. Bonhoeffer uh, in Nazi Germany is probably the closest modern experience of this, a tyrannical ruler. And he began as a pacifist, 
And then he decided he was going to get involved in the political intrigue of trying to overthrow Hitler and ended up in jail for rescuing Jews and speaking out against the Nazi regime. And then in reflection, he said this, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible makes quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. The Bible directs man to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. We will be marginalized, but that's okay because Jesus is there in that place. The last gospel corrective is to fear. Fear throughout this section, particularly to the wives, Peter says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your husbands. Slaves, don't, don't act in, in a Christ-like way because you're afraid of your master. He says the gospel corrects that. And he ends that Jesus section by saying, he's the overseer and the shepherd of your soul. He's with you. He's with you. He's your pro- provider. He's your protector. He's your leader. And, and the two words he uses, one taken out of Jewish understanding of God, the shepherd. And, and, the, and the other, the overseer, was, was a pagan word used of someone who guarded the city. Both images, Peter is saying, that's who God is for you. He's a shepherd and he's your guardian. You don't have to fear your oppressive government or your oppressive masters or your oppressive husband or your oppressive wife whatever the situation might be you don't need to fear because you reverence God and he's your shepherd and he will guard and protect and provide for you in the midst of that and if you suffer because of your Christian commitment to him in an environment that's hostile and negative then God is pleased with that not because he delights in your pain and your suffering but he delights in your commitment to him that's willing to endure present hardship and suffering and rejection and verbal abuse and harassment whatever that might be because you're doing it to honor jesus and he modeled that for you so follow in his footsteps live like jesus and then the the pagan world around you will not understand that because it flies against the cultural norms and the expectations so i want to say as we wrap up and i get Andy to jump up just one final thought on all this stuff I know in a congregation this size that I I hate to think this but I know statistically it's possible that there are women here there might be even men here because I know not it doesn't just go one way domestic violence in some cultures the domestic violence is more from women to men and so I want to say this if you're in that situation where you feel like you're being abused physically, verbally, or emotionally, or you've been controlled financially, or your, your movements are being restricted because your husband or your wife is dominating and in controlling, that is not biblical. Please don't ever think that God expects you to sit there and take it because somehow that's part of your Christian devotion and commitment. Even in the pagan context, No wife that endured with domestic abuse would have been considered honorable, even in 2,000 years ago pagan society. There's no virtue in that. There's no honor in that. And there's no Christianity in that. I want to say that. God 
is never about condoning violence and abuse. You know, in Malachi, the, the passage that everyone goes to to say divorce, God hates divorce. In that same verse, it also says that he also hates injustice, which some Bible translators interpret as violence. See, we want the one, but we don't want the other. But it says both. And so I want to say to you, my dear sister, my dear brother, if you're experiencing that stuff, please find safety. Please find help. There's so many websites and services. And I know the nature of domestic violence makes it really difficult to come forward and to say anything because there's so much shame and so much fear and all of that. And that's why I'm saying it to you in a way that gives you options because it's unlikely you'll ever come and tell me. But if you did, I will help you. Our team, our elders will do all we can to help you. But if that is going to be too hard, please, please don't stay there just because you think the church condones it or the church expects you to or the Bible thinks that you ought to. Seek help. Get out. Find, report it to the police because it is against the law. And so if you would like to talk to me or email me, please do that or, or Dash or any of our elders' wives. They'll be more than happy to talk to you or our elders. But Jesus modeled something completely different. And I hope that as we've encountered this text that was written thousands of years ago to people living in a very different context, that we'll go away and we'll talk to our husbands and wives. We'll talk to our bosses and talk to our workplace and try and figure out how we can live this out as Christians. How we can be good citizens, good employees, good employers, good husbands, good wives in our context that will show our culture that we're following Jesus and we're living differently because of Him and that we will bring Him glory, if not here and now, certainly when He returns again. Why don't you bow your heads? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come into this place in a very real way. I know you're here. You've been here all along. But Lord, come in a very particular, specific way. Lord, for those particularly who are struggling or feeling powerless, Lord, I pray that this message that is all about your power in our powerlessness will be an encouragement to them whether it's in their workplace, whether it's in another context of an institution they're in where they just feel so devalued and powerless. I pray that the gospel, the message of Jesus, the hope we have in Jesus will encourage and strengthen them. Lord, to, yeah, deal with persecution, to deal with insult, to deal with harassment, to deal with all of the negative and unjust suffering that comes because of their faith but also, Father, to not disengage, but to rise up and do what they can to honor you, to serve you, to bring you glory. I pray, Lord, for those who are gripped by fear, that you will strengthen them by your Holy Spirit, that you will remind them that you are with them as their shepherd, as their guardian, and that you'll walk with them through every challenge that might be ahead for them. And God, I pray, rather than wanting to retaliate, and rebel and, and cause a revolution and, and, and pay back evil for evil, that they would rest in you, Father, and know that your grace will bring them through to your glory 
and ultimately to your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like prayer this morning, I would love to pray with you. If you'd like to ask me any questions, I'll be here.